0: So I want to uh, help uh, guide us in this uh, afternoon session in the uh, exploration of how to practice with thoughts and emotions both in our meditation practice and then pointing towards bringing that uh, understanding of how to work with thoughts and emotions into our speech practice. And I'll give some outline of uh, some suggestions of how to practice. And we'll, we'll do um, at least uh, two exercises together. And also I think have some room for discussion in, in approximately the next hour. So it will be some talking, some experiential work, and then some chance to share, or debrief, uh, discuss things. One of the interesting aspects about developing in um, our speech practice, in our communication practice, is that in a way, a lot of the fundamentals that are really crucial for uh, skillful speech practice, actually are more about what we do before we open our mouths. And so I like, for example, the way that Oren has this whole section which is framed as attention. It's not framed as talking, right? It's framed as attending to these aspects of experience. And there are ways in which uh, we can see, uh, and I think, I think we've sometimes used this language, or in, in the past, that in a way, when we get to the actual communication techniques of here's a skillful way to, to say this or talk about this, it's gonna build on everything we've done, about tuning into needs, about being, as we'll see in this session, skillful with thoughts and emotions, about developing mindfulness, about ways of developing a kind heart. That if those foundations aren't there, we can have all the great communication skills in the world and the communication uh, won't necessarily be very skillful. It's interesting, right? So in a way, a lot of the energy here is on building these foundations, mindfulness, loving kindness, tuning into needs, developing intention and working with that curiosity and care and so forth. Um, That's quite interesting. And the area that I'll be focusing on uh, this afternoon is how do we work skillfully with what we, in the West, call thoughts and emotions. And it's interesting that all of these terms are used in slightly different ways. Interesting also that in the Buddhist context, there actually is no word that directly translate as, um, translates as emotion. Essentially, they carve up experience in a different way. There's a different framework. It's more... It's sometimes done in the West also. We sometimes, you know, um, sometimes we have the framework that dates at least from Plato and the Greeks of seeing three parts of experience, bodily experience, emotional experience, and more cognitive experience, right? And that's that's more or less the framework that probably most of us use. Sometimes in the West, it's just been mind and body, right? And emotion kind of gets brought into mind. And the, the framework, in the, in the Buddhist cultures is more that what we call thought and emotion are brought into one category and then the physical is in a second category. So it's interesting. So even to talk about mindfulness of thoughts and emotions is making a translation. You know, it's, it's uh, talking in really in our language. Being skillful and aware of thoughts and emotions is vital for our speech practice so that we are not simply uh, tossed around by whatever our thoughts or emotions are, that we're not tossed around by our becoming angry or our judgmental mind or our excitement and happiness and that we, the emphasis especially, is on really knowing well our own patterns, both the ones that are more pleasant and the ones that are less pleasant, and knowing them very well as as a key. And also in doing that, we can have a sense very much of uh, how other people work. If we know our own thoughts and emotions well, well, we may have a pretty good way to be more empathic and understanding of others, if we've studied, if we've studied in depth, you know. And for me, one of the benefits of a longer period of meditation practice is, is, and particularly doing retreats, is that virtually all of the emotions, including the difficult ones, have come up for sustained periods in meditation practice. And I've, you know, normally we don't necessarily look carefully at them, but you know, for example. One of my early retreats, I had mostly fear for a, a good period of time, you know, in the retreat. Other retreats, it was bliss and happiness and understanding. So I, I kind of I had enough of a balance, so I got interested, right? You know, and, but there were definitely, there was that retreat. Another retreat, uh, I actually experienced anger uh, virtually nonstop, 18 hours a day for 10 days in a row. It was all in the workable range. That was a blessing, right? So I got to study it. It was pretty interesting. I had never known anger quite like that, right? I could, it, it, it didn't match what I thought anger was, right? You know, in, in multiple ways. You know, another retreat really studying judgment, judgment of others, self-judgment, and so forth, and, and so forth. You know, other, you know, other... Times when uh, grief has been quite strong, you know, or or happiness, calm, equanimity. So, meditation is wonderful in that it lets us really stay with these, stay with these phenomena. And and uh, I'll I'll talk about thoughts and emotions in a few different ways, and we'll continue with looking at emotions tomorrow and. One, one thing I want to say initially, and then I think I'll probably come back to it, is that one of the ways that emotions are understood is um, in the context of NBC, where uh, emotions are understood as quite connected with needs. In other words, um, when needs are met, there may be a certain range of emotions. And we have that in our, in our um, packet, right? You know, can, can see uh, the way they're presented is that they're presented in relationship to uh, um, the, the meeting or the not meeting of needs. So for example, I could be having, um, I could be very excited and really passionate related to my need being met for uh, learning and growth and exploration, right? And that uh, emotion in the NBC context is there because a need's being met. And conversely, when needs are not being met, it's natural for certain emotions to arise. If I'm, my need for intimacy is not being met, what my uh, my emotions be? Sadness, Sadness right? What? Yeah, could be could be a series, could be um, sadness, frustration, loneliness, right? And so we'll be tuning into the way that emotions have this uh, strong connection with needs. Or if I'm, let's say, my uh, need for autonomy, let's say in a work situation, is not being met. What might my emotion or emotions be? Might be anger. Excuse me? Yeah, it could be anger, resentment, frustration. And, then, and my thoughts could, could go into being judgmental of self or other and so forth. So we'll want to be tracking that relationship and we'll continue with that. I, may, I think I may bring that up later today and then uh, we'll also explore that tomorrow. Yeah.
1: What if the feeling that comes up um, is really strong um, and is triggered by something someone says or does, but it really has more to do with the veils of past pain, the veils of, ch- of past pain, like childhood yeah, yeah. stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll try to weave a response to that question in. the The uh, short answer would be, uh, I'm not going to try to answer it in the context of needs and emotions. But, yeah, there can be all sorts of uh, ways that emotions manifest. Let me try to weave that in, okay? And I'll have some, we'll have some time for discussion at the end. So one way that Buddhist practice and uh, nonviolent communication uh, share a perspective is in that we really take, in a way, and this would be relevant for your questions. well, we take radical responsibility for our experience, right? And so things can be triggered by others, you know, and we can have events happen that trigger certain emotions, but we try to take radical, kind of radical responsibility for our own thoughts and emotions. And I'll say, say what that means. Um, So for example, One way to frame it is that we are, we are really trying to be responsive rather than reactive. And we, we, we may sometimes be reactive, but we want especially to try to be able to be responsive. And ideally, in every circumstance, even if I've been triggered, even if past pain from childhood, which is very, you know, of course, very a lot of our deeper patterns are connected with that past pain. Even if that gets triggered, I try to take responsibility for the experience rather than blaming what happened in the past or blaming another person. One, in, in Buddhist practice, one way that this is understood is in terms of probably my favorite Buddhist teaching, that I rarely have a retreat in which I don't offer the teaching. So, here it is. It's the teaching called the teaching of the two arrows. How many of you know this? Okay. A lot of you. How many of you don't know that this teaching? Okay. okay. Here it is. Okay. <laughs> okay. The, the Buddha was once basically uh, hanging out with a bunch of uh, monks and nuns. And he uh, asked them, everyone experiences the unpleasant. How is a practitioner different from a non-practitioner? They did not answer him. And so he uh, answered his own question, which was one of his common pedagogical techniques. And he said, Yes, everyone at times experiences unpleasant um, sensations. He, in the text, he was talking about physical sensations. I think we can generalize it to mean all types of experiences. And this is going back to the morning teaching about the feeling tone, that uh, we all at times experience unpleasant feeling tones. Unpleasant ex- we have unpleasant experiences. We can have unpleasant physical experiences. We get ill. We get injured. Well, we, we sit in meditation for a little longer than our bodies say is the optimal time, right? And we can have some unpleasant sensations and similarly we can have unpleasant emotions. We can have unpleasant interactions where, where I, you know, maybe uh, again in NBC language one of my needs is not met, I get angry, let's say, I have unpleasant Experiences. I'm treated in a way which uh, I don't like, and so forth. And we can also be treated unfairly or unjustly at times. And so, in all of that, um, everyone's the same. Everyone at times experiences unpleasant experiences. Everyone at times experiences unpleasant experiences. Okay, that's not. I have. Sometimes when I give talks, my high school English teacher is above my right shoulder correcting my grammar and word use and so forth, so she made an observation just now. (laughs) So, uh, her name is Miss Baker, she was, (laughs) she was, anyone have someone like Miss Baker in high school? She was, I learned a lot, but she was generally, uh, you know, employed methods of terror. And and so um, everyone uh, everyone has, at times, unpleasant experiences. And the Buddha said, that is like being shot by an arrow. He said, that's like being shot by the first arrow. And in that, practitioners and non-practitioners are identical, no different. Where the difference is, is that a non-practitioner, we might say being triggered by the unpleasant experience will react and will do something that is reactive and compulsive that, again, very much in line with what Oren was exploring in the talk yesterday in the afternoon, we will tend to react to the unpleasant in some way or other. And the practitioner learns not to do this. So what does that look like to react? That if I'm having unpleasant physical experiences, I may tense around them. I may, you know, if I have unpleasant sensations uh, sitting here in meditation, I may uh, blame myself or I may judge. I may react uh, verbally through being judgmental. I might judge myself. Oh, I should have meditated more last week so I get ready for the retreat or could say teachers really were unwise in their schedule <laughs> they should have had shorter meditations right and we might be reactive in that way we could also maybe say that a little more reasonably but we, we might react and, and actually uh, uh, a lot of uh, you know observers and you know, um, students of of, pain, of chronic pain have found that as much as 80% of chronic pain is the reaction to the unpleasant sensation in some forms of chronic pain and not what has to be there necessarily. So not coincidentally, the first medical intervention with, uh, was with the area of chronic pain because if you can have people not shoot the second arrow with chronic pain, as much as 80% of the pain might not be there quite something. And that's easy to see with emotional reactions, Like, Like something may happen. I may have a difficult interaction with my partner for 15 seconds and I react about it for the next three days. (laughs) We know that well, right? We know that we know what shooting the second arrow means interpersonally. Someone's
1: shooting
0: shooting the second arrow is the reaction. Yeah, whatever. The ruminating, the reacting, the speaking, the self-judgment, the judgment of others and so forth. So, uh, you know, that's, that would be an example of shooting the second arrow. And the, you know, same thing could happen if there's injustice or someone has done something uh, that's painful for my group, my nation. I, you know, countries shoot second arrows at each other. A lot of conflicts could be understood in terms of shooting second arrows, you know. So all of this is very relevant to working with violence, peacemaking and so forth. And so what the Buddha suggested was that uh, right at the heart of our practice, and this is actually in some ways a more direct way of talking about the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism, that the aim of practice is to not shoot the second arrow, it's to actually transform reactivity. Another way of talking about that is that we take responsibility for our own experience. I have something unpleasant happening, I try to take responsibility, and it happens on many, many levels. Here's here's another example of shooting the second arrow. This is a young meditator talking. Today I will live in the moment. Unless the moment is unpleasant, in which case I will eat a cookie. This is a perhaps less harmful way of shooting the second arrow, but it's still it's still a way of reacting, right? Or not. And so, again, as, as with the instruction this morning, we learn, there, there are a number of different ways that we could work with this. We learn where the uh, level of the unpleasant is workable and not causing harm for ourselves or others. We learn how to be with that. We learn how to be with sadness or anger or fear or... or other challenging emotions, which again, for me, before I did that in a sustained way in a meditative context, I had never done that. Some of us may learn that in psychotherapy or have very enlightened parents, um, whatever. Um, And so there's that sense that we we learn not to shoot the second arrow. And I would say the most common guidance that I give in doing one-on-one work with people is that when someone has had something difficult happen, I say, watch your tendency to shoot the second arrow and try not to do it. Try not to shoot that second arrow. One way that we could translate the first arrow and second arrow into English is sometimes we could say that shooting that the first arrow is pain and the second arrow is suffering, involves reactivity. Right, that's the key and I, I prefer just to talk about reactivity because suffering is sometimes used to mean the same thing as pain. It's confusing in english right but that's that's the idea that there's um, some kind of uh, some kind of reaction and i think this is this intention even if i'm experiencing the unpleasant has been triggered by someone's unskillful action i still take responsibility for my experience, I think there's that there's a similar intention in NBC, and we will explore it some tomorrow. Even in the way that we, um, even in the way that we sometimes reframe the ordinary way we talk about um, what's happening. You know, so one of the things that I think we'll look at more tomorrow, when we when we go into more depth on emotions, is we want to be careful with uh, f- phrasing. That appears to be talking about an emotion, but that is actually bringing in interpretations and even the judgmental mind. So we have in English all sorts of ways of saying, "I feel <coughs> this," you know, "I feel disrespected," "I feel manipulated," right? "I feel devalued." Right? All the all these phrases and. Um, the suggestion is that we actually want to, in some ways that is not taking responsibility for our own experience. And so we actually try to be careful and try to come back to be more precise with what actually is there that is the emotion that's, that's present. In, in NBC, emotions are understood as particularly grounded in the body. You know, and something that can be rooted in in bodily experience. You know, another way, other people understanding emotions like sometimes understand them differently. If you look to some of the researchers and so forth, but but that's that, that's a very helpful <coughs> very helpful guideline. So three ways of practicing with thoughts and emotions. And again, we'll, tomorrow we'll, we'll work more with what's in the, the packet on NBC about this whole range of emotions. And for a lot of us it can be very helpful just to have, sometimes this happens in meditation, it can also happen in NBC, just to have a much wider vocabulary, to have what you know Daniel Goleman calls emotional literacy. Right, where we have a mo- much wider vocabulary you know, uh, that, uh, uh, of the nuances of emotions and the different kinds of emotions. I think some of the research, I think, and there, this is where you know, there are a lot of gender issues with when you get into emotions. I think it was the research, if I remember right, when they did research, I forget the year it was done, but they found that men basically had access to what? Just a few, emo- very few emotions. The primary one was anger. <laughs> Right. And not very many nuances. And part of what we, part of what helps us both in our mindfulness practice and our speech practice is to start to become more literate about the range of emotions and what's there and, and how we can recognize, you know, the differences between whatever uh, frustration and impatience, for example, and really have a, a more detailed sense of what's there and, So three ways of working with thoughts and emotions. Uh, The first one is to uh, come back to balance if we're out of balance. This is something we've talked about, at least in passing, in terms of certain kinds of experiences that one of the key questions to ask if we're, you know, whether it's, we're just in the flow of everyday experience or whether we're in meditation, is is my experience right now particularly of the thoughts and emotions is it workable is am i can i be relatively balanced with it or am i lost in the thoughts and emotions and this is actually i think a question that i believe needs to be asked more in meditative context you know that i i've known a lot of people who base you know basically know what's happening maybe i'm trapped in anger in a certain way and it's just happening over and over again and I kind of know it's there and I, and I, but I'm not really balanced with it and I just keep on staying with it. And I've heard this happen also sometimes with bodily experiences where some kind of trauma is being relived, right? And that uh, we, need, we need to have a certain degree of workability of what's happening. If not, it's wise to try to come back to balance. That's why we sometimes give the guidance here if, if it's in the workable range, then can stay with it, but be sensitive to when the activation level is too high. You know, and that's, you know, that's, we could, that's, that's a little bit vague and, and general, but we can partly know that for ourselves. And probably, you know, we might be able to quantify it in terms of percentage of the time I can be present. You know, if it's pretty low, close to, you know, 10% or zero and something strong is happening, could be a good sign that what's actually skillful at that time is to come back to balance. And it might be in the meditation, if it's really, really strong, it could be very skillful to uh, actually open the eyes, look around, you know, one of the techniques which can be quite helpful is to look for something, particularly if it's a difficult body sensation or emotion. look to something that's pleasant, look to something that really feels comfortable and kind of to, to go there. There are all sorts of other ways to come back to balance, you know, the the uh, heart practices like loving kindness, when they're developed enough, can be meditative ways that we come back to balance. I know I've used this a lot, that if I, you know, in, in times if I've been a little, you know, uh, disturbed with something, and the metta has been developed day by day, really crucial point, the metta has to be strong enough. And, I operationally define strong enough as having been practiced at least 10 minutes a day. So, so it has to be strong enough, then because loving-kindness is concentration, we can actually use the concentration of the mind to actually, in a way, push away the difficult emotion that's too much. Normally we don't try to push away things, but when things are too much, that's skillful. So very crucial point when, again, when emotions are not in the workable range then we want to come back to balance again we can do it meditatively, we can do it by taking a walk, talking to a friend, coming out of meditation, um, finding different resources and so forth, doing body practices, yoga, qigong and so forth. Okay. So that's the that's first important criteria when things are challenging. And something to remember, you know, at the proverbial 3 a.m. in the morning, waking up, oh my God, <laughs> has anyone ever had that happen? Okay, about uh, a third of the group rose their, raised their hands. But yeah, but, but to, to use, uh, to, to know, I think very, it's a very crucial question to ask, Is this manageable, workable, can I be mindful, can I be present with it? If we can be present and mindful, mindfulness is a really a optimal choice. If we can be present with something, sometimes there are other things we can do, but especially when we're still exploring emotions and thoughts, mindfulness is is really crucial. And so mindfulness is a whole second way of working with thoughts and emotions that we can do in meditation, we can also just do it on the spot when something comes up. You know, like I know for me, very helpful guidance in situations has just been to um, ask the old phrase from the 60s and 70s, what's happening? <laughs> I had a friend who, I don't know whether it was because of drugs or whatever, but he, all he said for what, like one year was, what's happening? <laughs> I, just, I just remembered him. I hope he's okay now. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. It just came out. Okay. Um, but, but that's something that we can ask on the spot. If, we, if our mindfulness is strong enough, we can ask on the spot. Maybe something that I, I do, maybe many of you do, something happens at a meeting, you get a little disturbed, and you take a pause, you either pause in the meeting or maybe you take the bathroom break, right? Or something like that. Take a, go outside for a moment and just try to say what's happening and try to use mindfulness in the moment. That the, the value of the pause, again, can save us from that immediate reaction. Which is, again, so much happens just from that shooting of the second arrow. I'm, something difficult happened and I just react. We want to do various things which help with that, mindfulness, tremendous aid. Can use it in the moment, can use it in meditation, things come up, you know again helpful to name what's going on, name the thought, name the emotion. A very uh, helpful way of practicing that many of you know I think is is a method that was originally developed by Michelle McDonald Smith, Uh, at the time I think Michelle McDonald. Um, And this is a method that has been popularized by by Howard Brock, by Jack Cornfield by quite a number of teachers. It's called the method uh, that goes under the acronym RAIN. How many, how many of you know this one? So quite a few. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I can, I'll be brief on it. But this is a very helpful guide to um, mindfulness and skillful work with thoughts and emotions. And so the R stands for typically for recognize, know what's happening. Use a label, again, especially it's valuable in meditation, but especially valuable in the flow of experience. Again, th- think of these, you can see how valuable these are even before we say anything, right? Just to know what's happening, to give it a label. I think I, I think I mentioned yesterday that I, I keep the, sometimes keep a running log. Uh, you know, I'm at a meeting and I have my little mindfulness log and I notice what's going on and it's very helpful to me to notice you know, in a given meeting, tired, sarcastic thoughts developing, <laughs> right? That the noticing of that often helps me not to helps me to have the choice that we've talked about sometimes, to have that ability to respond rather than just to react. We, we're looking for all these supports that help us to uh, respond rather than react. That's really at the heart of what we're doing. And so... We can uh, recognize uh, the naming, the labeling, very helpful. The second is to acknowledge or accept, not in the accept in the sense that this is a good thing, but accept in the sense that this is really happening, right? I'm sitting at the meeting. I may not want anger to be there, but yes, anger is there. I acknowledge that anger is arising in in the, the meeting right now. The third is a really crucial one. This is to inquire or investigate. And this is really at the heart of our mindfulness practice and really crucial, and this is where we can learn so much. And we can do this with uh, mindfulness and we we can, there are a few different ways that we can practice. So the inquiry may just be to sit with the anger and notice that there's anger. Another way that we can sometimes ask, and this is, this is related to the question from the morning about when do we do different kinds of inquiry, we can actually guide ourselves to different aspects of that experience. We can say, I'm experiencing anger. What's it feel like in the body? And tune into how the body feels. We can say, what are the thoughts that are occurring? you know, and see what the narratives are. Notice what the narratives are, or the thoughts connected with, with the anger in this case. We can also, with our mindfulness, we can ask the question like, when I stay with the anger, does it move into something else? You know, and so the example of anger for, um, is, is helpful in that, you know, uh, anger often is about some you know, some need not being met, a particular uh, version of that, and you know, psychologists you know say something very similar. Often they say that that uh, anger is a cover emotion; it covers up up something. It may cover up uh, sadness, or um, frustration, or, or or fear. Yeah, and then when we when we actually, if we if we stay, so one way to work with emotion is very helpful in the inquiry part of the process is to see if the emotion moves. Often they will move, they don't stay static, they're changing and they they get into different levels. That's partly in response to your question. We stay with an experience and different levels of our being open up over time. When I stayed with anger for 10 days in a row, a lot opened up, including material that was younger. there, there is a way that things just, just open up like that. So we can inquire, we can do that. We could also ask, uh, this is not in traditional mindfulness instructions, but we could ask, for example, here's this emotion. We could ask what need is being met or not met. That could be a, a very helpful inquiry you know, uh, to work with. The N stands for non-identification sometimes uh, phrased as not taking it personally, right? Can I just be with the flow of experience? This is really the spirit of mindfulness. Can I be with the flow of experience much as if I was a naturalistic scientist just observing, the, uh, just observing something happening? It's a little bit different with mindfulness because it's actually not that, it's not a kind of distance observation, but there is that sense of just being, again, we can bring in that sense of both curiosity and care. Can we be uh, curious and caring about this uh, flowing of my own experience? And that, you know, that's uh, actually probably, I think Michelle had a slight addition to her rain phrase. Did you hear about that, Arne? Raindrop. Raindrop, so she expanded it. I, I won't go into that, but I was thinking that one of the uh, dimensions that we would want to bring in would be care, would be the, that heart of metta, you know, which isn't explicitly in any of those four, right? Um, so so this, is a, this can be a very helpful method for exploring uh, both thoughts and emotions. So what I, what I want to do is right now, uh, after hearing that, uh, let's do a short guided practice, okay? So do any shifting that you need to be able to sit comfortably or be comfortable. To so bring to mind an experience in which some of your, in which an important need was met. Maybe that's happened in the last few days or the last week. First, just reflect on experience. And again, we're going to choose experiences more in the middle range, not the most awesome, fantastic experience, but something that was quite uh, positive in the sense of having needs met. Maybe on a scale of 1 to 10, in the 5 or 6, maybe 7 range, not the 9s or 10s. If you need a little more time to pick the experience, okay, then bring that experience to mind as if you're reliving it. So you can imagine the physical location, if you're with other people, bring them to mind, even bring to mind what they're wearing. Make it real for yourself. And then with the sense that you're reliving the experience to a certain extent. First, bring to your awareness an emotion that might be there, and there might be a few, but tune in to an emotion that's there. And see if you can feel what it's like in the body. Predominantly feel it in the body. Are there thoughts that are connected with this emotion in some way? See if you can tune into the thoughts. They may be general thoughts, might be narratives, what kind of thoughts seem connected? Is there another emotion that's that's present? If so, you can again name it, the R, acknowledge that it's present and then much like we did just now explore it, what does it feel like in the body? the thoughts that are connected with this second emotion. If I stay with the emotion for a little while, does it seem to change and other emotions arise or does it seem to open up to other thoughts and emotions? Can I explore all of this without taking it personally, just very much as if I'm interested and curious and in a sense whatever is there I'm interested to see and notice and explore. Can I have that attitude of curiosity and care? And then you can invite this experience to fade away, if you want to just shake a little bit the body to let the experience pass. And then come back just to sitting quietly. with a more challenging type of experience. So again bring to mind a challenging experience that may have occurred in the last few days or if you want to go back a week or whatever and again on a scale of um, one to ten something more in the middle not the nines or tens but probably something like four or five or six. So first just reflect on which experience you'll focus on and raise your hand if you need a little more time to come up with the experience. now much like we did before, bring that experience to mind as if you're reliving it. Again, it can be helpful to be quite specific, depending if you're visual or not, can be specific about the locale, where are you, who's there, or you're on your own with others, bringing some of the visual detail there or Whatever helps you to bring this experience to the present so that you're, in a sense, reliving it. And you may have had the experience of remembering what you or someone else said or did. And for now, let's work again with the RAIN method first to notice, is there an emotion that's uh, predominant? If so, first recognize it, give it a name. You just can do one that we can work with one at a time. What does it feel like in the body? Maybe we should go back to the A, just to acknowledge, yes, this is here. Sometimes the acknowledging or the accepting is harder with a challenging emotion. So we recognize, we acknowledge it's here. And then we can inquire or investigate with that spirit of non-identification, the N, not taking it personally, you can do it similarly to how we just worked with the more positive emotion. We can say, let me just feel the emotion in the body. What part of the body does it seem to be located? Are there thoughts connected with the emotion? What are the narratives or thoughts that are going on? What's the nature of the emotional energy? Does it seem to open up to other emotions? What's the emotional energy feel like? Now again, we can shake out a little bit, let this experience be shaken out, brought to, brought out of our, our system. And let's just sit quietly for just a little while. We have a little bit of time to share anything that you might have explored or learned uh, in that experience. Uh, Any questions about anything that was said about the, you know, some of the methods of working uh, skillfully with thoughts and emotions and we'll be, we'll be expanding it. This is sort of a introductory uh, overview of, of some ways to work with this. We'll, we'll keep coming back. Anything you noticed in the in the exercise?
1: Um, during the fourth part, the non identification, I realized that um, I had a hard time non identifying because I was really acting upon the sense of responsibility. This is you know, I'm responsible for this feeling, so then yeah. it was difficult to not identify. Do you have any advice for that?
0: Yeah, so it was a situation in which you felt respons- responsibility.
1: Um, not even, it just responsible for my feelings, just not blaming the other person for the feelings I was feeling.
0: Oh, you mean, mean my my point about being responsible? Yeah, how
1: oh, yeah. to combine those two.
0: Yeah. Um, it actually brings up a good point by, by responsibility. I think we're especially meaning the ability to respond when they occur, not so much the sense that I am, I was the one who caused all this to happen. Right? So that's, that's an important difference, isn't it? Right? So thank you for that because it's, it's more, yeah, it's more responsibility in the sense of being able to be skillful, with whatever occurs Um, in the sense, you know, and I I mean, I think of this sometimes also in um, terms of something that may, you know, I think of this in terms of social issues sometimes. There are a lot of things that happened that I wasn't even around when they started, right? You know, that there's racism, sexism, and so forth. Uh, In a sense, I can be responsible for that even though the causes are way in the past. So it's the ability to respond. And so, um, but we don't sit there thinking, how did I cause that emotion, right? Okay, so, thanks. Hi.
1: Um, and it, to to hmm. deepen that question a bit, because yeah. I sort of have the same, well, um, with a newer practitioner that I was, communicating with, he said, or did something, I can't remember, um, that hurt me, and Mm -hmm. I said I was hurt by that, and he said, well, I'm not responsible for your feelings, Mm -hmm. so how does that work?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let me me start. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's... um, when we get into how we speak about this, we can be very well-meaning and quite clumsy in, a, in, our, in our speaking. And so, um, we are, um, we have responsibility for what we say. And so on, you know, we may, uh, we may be unskillful in how we speak, and we may uh, trigger, you know, someone's self-judgment or something, or trigger, something, and the, uh, the person is not in a sense responsible for your emotions, but the person has, you know, it's important to acknowledge that there, there is a uh, relationship, you know, we might call it triggering, and people, you know, if I'm a Buddha, if someone insults me right and left, I may be not affected because I'm perfected responsibility or whatever. Uh, but the, the person who is insulting right and left is responsible for that person's, you know, for his or her uh, speech, right, and so forth. So I think that this person was reflecting this, but not really maybe acknowledging the, um, what we might call the impact of, of what was said. And that might not be very skillful. Yeah.
1: Yes. Um, but how do we? It, earlier, you had said we are responsible for our own feelings. Yeah. But if we're being hurt, or feeling hurt by someone else's actions yeah. or words, how does how does? Yeah,
0: that I'll, I'll say one thing. Orin, I think Orin has some things to add. Uh, again. Um, yeah. I, I realized that using the word responsibility, I take some responsibility for having used the word responsibility
1: <laughs> and it is said a lot in NBC. Yeah. So
0: yeah, it's the, the way that I'm holding it is again that we have the ability to respond, meaning I'm triggered. What's a skillful way for me to work with the situation? Not so much, that I'm thinking, oh, what was there in my past that led me to have this feeling, right? It's, n- it's not so much going there. It's more saying what, so it's, it's more present-centered. That's a good way to say it. The sense of responsibility is more present-centered. What's a skillful response right now? But, we, but the focus or the um, center is really on how I respond moment to moment. That's why we call it practice, right? It's a sense of how can I respond skillfully, whatever has been given me. Yeah, without blaming someone else for what's there in my experience. That's the spirit of it. You wanna add? Yeah,
2: yeah. so <clears throat> two things. Um, one, maybe just a distinction that might be helpful in terms of this thing that this person said, and I'm not responsible for your feelings. I would agree with him. He's not responsible for your feelings, but he is responsible to your feelings, which is another way to to say what Donald is saying is that he is responsible for his actions and then to be able to respond to your feelings. Oh, this had this impact on you. I wanna be able to respond to that, to take responsibility for the impact, to respond to the impact. The other thing that's kind of at the heart of both of your questions, which we'll look at more tomorrow, in this sense of like, well, where is the source of our emotions? Is it in the other person's action? From the perspective of NVC, it's not. The other person's action, Donald used the word, triggers the emotion. We might say is the stimulus for the emotion. But the emotion is connected to our needs. It's based on the needs that are met or not met. He might have said the same thing to you on a different day, and you would have felt angry and not hurt. He might've said the same thing to you on a third day and you might've felt completely balanced. He might say something to to someone else and they might have a different response. So is it in the thing that he said, or is it in how how it meets what's happening here based on what needs are present in us? And so there's that sense, there's a relationship, but it's not a direct relationship. The event doesn't cause the emotional response. the the most immediate cause if we could say for the emotion is the needs underneath it what's the needs that are met or not met and then the and then the event is the stimulus and so then we can talk about that you know when you said this i felt really hurt because i was wanting more care and respect that's the because of what it's because of what i'm wanting so we'll we'll go into this more tomorrow Another
0: another way to see that is to know that some things triggered us five or ten years ago. and The exact same thing could be said now, and it doesn't, right? Because there's maybe been a certain amount of inner work or healing and so forth. So that can, in a sense, point to the same uh, understanding. Maybe last one, uh, Janet. Let's, Let's use the microphone. Where's the...
2: about responsibility you'd said you know if if you say i feel disrespected yeah. that that was not taking responsibility that you needed to be more specific mm-hmm. with that can you tell a bit more about that cuz i'm i'm a little confused about that it's a
0: different kind of responsibility yeah yeah. Is, yeah it's my onus to
1: to do to be more clear is that what you're saying
0: yeah yeah i mean i think i'm i'm using again responsibility more in the sense of taking every moment as something that I can be skillful with, responsibility in that sense. See,
2: but I did, I don't understand. Disrespected is too general. Is that you Disrespected is too general. Is that what
0: you're? Yeah, talking? yeah. So mm-hmm. one one way to look at that is that um, we, as practitioners, can, as it were, take responsibility for being skillful in our speech, and can actually, um, again, use language in a way that leads more to connection and understanding. And when one says something like, I felt disrespected, well, uh, especially someone who's empathic and compassionate can understand what's being meant by it and can actually say, well, I have a sense that you know, your, how we talk is going to depend on the relationship. But we can, we, you know, that, uh, if I'm a practitioner, I can actually rephrase that in a way in which I talk maybe about emotions and needs not being met. I could reframe it like that. And as a uh, listener, when I hear someone speak like that, I can uh, empathically try to reframe and, and understand that way. But when, when I say something like that, I feel disrespected. Again, I'm uh, implying causality from the outside uh, by my very, I'm, I'm, in other words, I'm giving an interpretation that masquerades as an emotion.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah just what he said at the end. It's that words that disrespected, I'm telling a story about what you're doing to me. I feel judged. I feel misinterpreted. I feel attacked. Those aren't emotions. Those are, bl- that's blame. That's a story about what you're doing. I'm attributing intention to you as a way of representing my emotional experience. And so to take responsibility means to to actually share more clearly, I'm telling myself that you are disrespecting me. That would be taking responsibility. I'm having the thought that you are not respecting me. That's what's actually happening. And on the inside, I feel hurt, angry, scared, Frustrated, shocked, any number of emotions.
0: So a lot of this is actually seeing how some of our habitual language yeah. is uh, getting in the way. What? Yeah, yeah. I think I think we're going to have to. We're, we're at time. Very brief. Okay. Okay.
1: Hi. So, yeah, I heard the word. Um, I've used. I've heard the word responsibility being used as um, like response um, two words response and ability mm-hmm. so it's kind of like having the responsibility to res- having the ability ability to respond
0: great so yeah that's very very aligned and and in particular if we can make the connection between uh, or, or see that response as opposed to react and the reaction can be really uh, seen as the uh, shooting of the second arrow. In other words, it's something more automatic and it particularly comes from, uh, well, in in Buddhist tradition, there are two ways of reacting, but the main way that sort of coming up is we react to the presence of the unpleasant. I don't like it, I push it away automatically. In the Buddhist psychology, we would also be reactive when we grab hold of something as well, yeah. The clinging and aversion, yeah. So we will, yeah, very rich, isn't it? And, and you can see the, the subtleties of language, right? Just that even the word responsibility, we have to be careful with that because it can be heard in different ways. Right? So let's just sit for a moment.